G'day, welcome to Age Abuse and Justice, where each episode I summarise an elder abuse case to demonstrate what elder abuse looks like and how the law deals with it. My name is Tanya Chapman, and today we're looking at what is possibly my favourite case of all time. There are some elements of elder abuse in this case. There are elements of elder grooming and undue influence. There are challenges to the will after the older person's death, which isn't elder abuse but does show a disregard for the older person's wishes. This case also involves publicly revealing intimate and personal details of the deceased, which again isn't elder abuse, but I still find it to be disrespectful and offensive. The reason this is possibly my favourite case is because it's full of so many wild and outrageous details that you almost feel as if you're listening to a soap opera. Some of this is just too outrageous to be real, and yet it is. Another warning, this case is a long one. I'm going to give you the background facts of the case first, and these facts were the issue of about 46 court judgments alone, focusing around five separate legal matters. To give you an example of what I'm talking about, I'll attach a list of court decisions all relating to the set of facts I'm going to be talking about today, and you can see how long this list really is, and that I'm not exaggerating when I said that there was 46 court judgments alone. But this isn't as onerous as that sounds, because I'm not going to be focusing on all of the cases. I've extrapolated the most interesting parts, or what I think are the most interesting, hopefully you do too, and those are what we're going to focus on. I should say though that the main character we will be looking at today was involved in a lot more legal proceedings, but those related to other people and other events. Because a lot of the same information was used in all five legal matters that I'm looking at today, I'm just going to go through all the evidence together and then let you know the outcomes of those different matters. Background Evelyn Hilston was born in Romania. She studied medicine for one year and then studied law for three years and qualified as a lawyer in Romania. She met Jack Hilston, who was an engineer and senior executive in the oil industry, and she married him in 1933. In 1939, they migrated to Australia. Jack served in the Australian Armed Forces in the Second World War. After that, he engaged in various business ventures. Evelyn established a beauty salon, and it was a successful business for many years. Evelyn was an astute businesswoman who had accumulated significant property of her own. She was described by people who knew her as proper, regal, intelligent, well-groomed and with a strong personality. Evelyn Hilston met Dr. Michael Bar Mordecai in about 1979 when she contacted him to be a doctor for her ailing husband Jack. At that time she and Jack had been married 46 years. After he had been treating Jack for about two years, Dr. Bar Mordecai began treating Evelyn as well in 1981. So both Jack and his wife Evelyn were Dr. Bar Mordecai's patients. In 1982, Jack suffered two strokes and was in a totally unconscious state for over a year. It was around this time that Evelyn ceased work and sold her business. Jack died on the 5th of August 1983. Evelyn had no children. Her closest relative was a sister who lived overseas, and on her husband's side, two nephews who lived in Greece. Also around this time, 1982-1983, Bar Mordecai was in the process of divorcing his wife and disputing custody of their two daughters. 
Dr. Bar Mordecai moved in with Evelyn into the unit she owned at 6 Mount Street, Cloverley, a small beachside suburb in Sydney. At the time, she was 72 years old and he was 36 years old. Bar Mordecai claimed that he moved in with Evelyn two and a half weeks after Jack's death and that he and Evelyn had first had sex 19 days after Jack's death. Evelyn continued to be a patient of Dr. Bar Mordecai up until her death in 1994. For 11 years, Bar Mordecai and Evelyn lived in the same house, shared holidays and attended synagogue together. During this time, she made gifts of around $1 million to him. Evelyn even worked in Bar Mordecai's medical surgery as a medical attendant without pay. Late in 1985, Bar Mordecai left the unit and moved in with a female medical colleague, but he only lived with her for about a month before moving back in with Evelyn. In April 1986, after they had been living together for more than two years, Bar Mordecai made a videotape of Evelyn, about 20 minutes long, in which he appeared to interview her. They discussed the nature of their relationship and her feelings. The audio isn't great, but the video was proof that there was a sexual element to their relationship, and, at least at the time the video was made, it was quite intense. On 31st of August 1989, Evelyn made a will, appointing Bar Mordecai to be her executor in charge of her estate. She owned the unit at Mount Street, Cloverley, a little two-bedroom apartment with some ocean views. The will left Bar Mordecai with the right to reside in the unit for the rest of his life, or to rent out the unit and receive the rent payments. She also left him 5% of the residue of her estate. In 1991, Bar Mordecai and Evelyn moved from the Mount Street property to another house Evelyn owned at 30 Eastbourne Avenue, Cloverley. They lived there together until Evelyn's death on the 24th of June 1994. She was 83 years old. So what is the nature of the five legal cases I mentioned? All of them involve similar facts, but basically the facts can be separated into different legal problems and each has their own court hearings, appeals and outcomes. But because the facts are the same, it's easy for them all to be jumbled together. Also, there were so many court hearings, so many different courts and judges involved. With the case this convoluted and which court proceedings spanned over two decades, it doesn't really matter for me to say which court or which judge made a decision. It's more important that I just say what the decision was. So the five matters are, first, probate proceedings. These proceedings involved Evelyn's last will and determining who administers her estate. Two, undue influence proceedings. The claim that Bar Mordecai used his influence over Evelyn to get her to give him stuff and the application to the court that the gifts be returned. Three, family provision proceedings. If a person dies and in their will they don't leave enough for someone they should have, like to their spouse or children, that person can apply to the court and ask the court to give them a greater share of the estate. Bar Mordecai claimed to be Evelyn's de facto partner, entitled to receive the whole of her estate. 4. Section 66G Proceedings If there is more than one owner of a house and one wants to sell and the other one doesn't, an application can be made under the Conveyancing Act for trustees to appoint it who will sell the house and divide the assets. It's called a Section 66G application. 5. Medical Tribunal Proceedings When a doctor does the wrong thing, they can be dragged before the medical tribunal and have their license to practice medicine revoked. I don't think you'd be surprised to hear that that happened in this case. I'm going to go through each of these matters, but before I do, a main theme running through all of the cases was whether Evelyn and Bar Mordecai were de facto partners. And by de facto partners, I mean, were they in a committed relationship almost like husband and wife? So let's have a look at that first. 
factos. Proving to the court that you have a de facto relationship can require that you provide intimate and personal details to the court and other parties involved. And, as I am demonstrating right now, there is a court record for nosy people like me to read. So, this is one of the reasons why, if you have a de facto partner, you should spare them this indignity and just do a will. To prove that he had been in a de facto relationship with Evelyn, Bar Mordecai provided the court with her medical records. The medical summary page for Evelyn included information not usually found in medical records. It lists Evelyn's personal wealth at $2 million, states that Ma Mordecai is her de facto. His notes include, quote, perfect compat, end quote, meaning compatibility, so saying that he and Evelyn had perfect compatibility as lovers, possibly. Coitus four times a week with, quote, 100% orgasm frequency, end quote. He doesn't specify whether the orgasms were his or hers. And excellent orgasm quality. Once again, not specifying whether the orgasms he's rating are hers or his, but regardless, he has rated them as excellent. And he also includes the note that Evelyn was a virgin until the age of 72 and had no knowledge of ovulation, conception, contraception or menstruation before August 1983. Reminder, this is a 72-year-old woman who most likely menstruated most of her life and his notes record that she had no knowledge of menstruation. This is possibly why, when looking at his medical records, the court rejected the idea that, in, that this information came from Evelyn. Bar Mordecai said that because he was a doctor, he could confirm that Evelyn was a virgin when they first had sex, despite the fact that she'd been married to Jack for over 40 years. Even though it was noted in her medical records, the court didn't believe that Bar Mordecai and Evelyn had sexual relationships on average four times a week from 1983 up until her death in 1994. So the court has Bar Mordecai saying that they were de facto partners, but he isn't really reliable. They can't hear Evelyn's side of the story because she is deceased. So is there anyone else who can give evidence that will show whether or not they were de factos? Alan Hilston was the nephew of Evelyn's deceased husband Jack. Alan stayed with Evelyn at the Mount Street unit when he visited Australia in 1985. There were only two bedrooms in the unit. Evelyn slept in one and he stayed in the other. He saw no evidence of Bar Mordecai living there at the time, and Bar Mordecai did not stay overnight while he was there. When he visited in 1991 and 1992, Evelyn was living at the Eastbourne Avenue home, and Alan gave evidence that while Bar Mordecai was living there, he and Evelyn had separate bedrooms. Jane Hilston was the sister of Evelyn's late husband. She stayed with Evelyn for about seven months in 1991 and 1992 at the Eastbourne Avenue home. Jane stated that during her stay, Evelyn and Bar Mordecai slept in separate bedrooms and at no time did Evelyn indicate to her that they were de facto partners or lovers. Alan Hilston's brother Alex also stayed with Evelyn. He stayed with her for 10 days, once in 1993 and again in 1994. He said that he didn't think Bar Mordecai was living there, that he only spent some time there. But this all up really wasn't proof of anything as the court found that Bar Mordecai spent much of his time at Evelyn's home, often slept there and sometimes slept with Evelyn, just never when her relatives were present to observe. So they were discreet. Professor Carlos Kramer was another nephew of Evelyn's late husband. He had first met Bar Mordecai around 1983. Carlos was a professor of engineering in Spain and was visiting Australia for work around the time of Evelyn's death. 
He had plans to stay at Evelyn's home from the 25th of June, the day Evelyn died. He stayed with Bar Mordecai at the home for two days. During that time, he said that Bar Mordecai was at times in good spirits and other times extremely sorrowful. Carlos visited again two weeks later, and by this time, Bar Mordecai's girlfriend Viola was living in the house. Bar Mordecai was brazen enough to introduce him to Viola. Carlos visited again on the 31st of July, and Viola's family had also moved in. Bar Mordecai called several patients to give evidence that he had been in a de facto relationship with Evelyn. One former patient, Mr. Charles Monty, said that Bar Mordecai spoke to him in great detail about his relationships with his patients. Although Bar Mordecai told Charles about Evelyn and how generous she was to him, he never suggested that they had a sexual relationship. So what he was saying was that Bar Mordecai was never shy about telling him what patients he was sleeping with, and he never told him that he was sleeping with Evelyn. Charles said that during 1993, Bar Mordecai spoke to him of having sex with numerous female patients, including their names, nationality, age, and physical attributes. He also told Charles in late 1993 that he was having a relationship with a woman named Viola and spoke with what Charles described as enthusiasm and tasteless detail. A few days after the funeral, Charles had an appointment with Bar Mordecai. He said that Bar Mordecai was overjoyed at all the money he was inheriting and told Charles that Viola had moved into the house the day after the funeral. Several other patients gave evidence that Bar Mordecai had told them that he was in a de facto relationship with Evelyn and that he had told them details of his relationship with her. The court found that this was highly unethical of Bar Mordecai when he considered that Evelyn was also a patient of his. And I quote, some had knowledge of the nature of the relationship based largely and even entirely on the statements made by Mr. Bar Mordecai, which he had no business to be telling them and which should fairly be described as sexual boasting. End quote. Bar Mordecai also called his mother, father, and brother to give evidence that he was in a relationship with Evelyn. This is interesting because he had also had a falling out with his family. With his love for legal proceedings, Bar Mordecai had threatened to sue his parents and brother in 1989 in relation to $80,000 he had gifted to his brother. It probably didn't help the situation that at the time of making this threat, his brother was working at his medical practice with him and his mother was in hospital for cancer treatment. Elsa was a massage therapist at Bar Mordecai's surgery and became close with Evelyn when Evelyn was working there. She often saw Evelyn and Bar Mordecai acting like a couple and Evelyn told her that she loves Bar Mordecai. Josephine was hired as a cleaner for a while at the home, and she confirmed that the bed in Evelyn's room looked to be shared by two people, and she packed Bar Mordecai's clothes away in the main bedroom. Two other people gave evidence that in speaking to Evelyn on separate occasions, they mentioned that Bar Mordecai was like a son, and she was quick to correct them to say that they were actually a couple. The court also looked at other evidence to determine whether they had been a couple. Evelyn never went by the name Bar Mordecai. She never went by Evelyn Bar Mordecai although that was the name the doctor had inscribed on her tombstone. In letters to friends and family and in completing hospital, tax and benefit forms, Evelyn never identified Bar Mordecai as her de facto partner, except on those medical records Bar Mordecai prepared himself. The court considered that Evelyn left Bar Mordecai a bequest in her will, but not her whole estate as you would expect with a de facto partner. She also on a few occasions explained to some people that on moving to the new house she would live on one floor and Bar Mordecai would live on the other, more like housemates than lovers. I mentioned earlier how Bar Mordecai's patient Charles Monty gave evidence that Bar Mordecai was in a relationship with a woman named Viola. Bar Mordecai was asked about this relationship 
He admitted that Viola had become a patient of his in June 1993, a year before Evelyn's death. Bar Mordecai even admitted that he had had sex with Viola one afternoon in late 1993 at the Eastbourne property when Evelyn was out of the house. The day after Evelyn's funeral, and just two days after her death, Viola moved into the Eastbourne property with Bar Mordecai. She lived there for about two months, and her mother moved in as well. During the relationship, Bar Mordecai allowed Viola to use Evelyn's jewellery, including her wedding ring. Later, after they broke up, Bar Mordecai was unable to get the jewellery back from her. Many of the judges involved in this case determined that even though there had been a sexual relationship, there wasn't a de facto relationship between Evelyn and Bar Mordecai at the time she died. However, the New South Wales Court of Appeal found that Bar Mordecai was a de facto, and said, quote, over 11 years, the two people so melded their social, sexual, and financial affairs as to constitute themselves a de facto couple. They lived together, worked together, shopped together, holidayed together, slept together, worshipped together, and largely pooled their assets in income. End quote. One, probate proceedings. On the 23rd of July 1989, Evelyn had a heart attack and was admitted to hospital. A month later, Bar Mordecai made a will, which left a piddling $200 each to his daughters, his parents and his brother. But the bulk of his estate was left to Evelyn, on the off chance he died before her, remembering that she is 36 years older than him. Soon after Bar Mordecai had made his will, Evelyn did a new will as well, her last will, which I shall refer to as the 1989 will. The will appointed Bar Mordecai to be her executor and trustee. She left him a right to live in the Mount Street unit for the rest of his life, or rent it out if he preferred. After Bar Mordecai's death, the Mount Street unit was to go to Evelyn's sister, Selma. Her will gave Bar Mordecai the right to purchase the Eastbourne Avenue home at market value, and she also left him 5% of the rest of her estate. The other 95% of the residue was to be divided between family members, including her husband's nephews, Alan and Jack Hilston. Letters between Evelyn and her nephews demonstrated that she had a strong affection and high, high regard for the nephews, so her wanting to leave them something in her will isn't surprising. However, after Evelyn's death, the original will couldn't be located. Bar Mordecai started legal proceedings in 1994, and for three years his story was that Evelyn had her original will in her house, but it could not be found, and it therefore must be assumed that she destroyed it. Then, in January 1997, he changed his story to say that Evelyn had told him that she had torn up her will with the intention of leaving him everything. And then in August, his story changed again. This time he had seen her tear up the will, that she had done it in front of him in 1992. Just a side note, you can revoke your will by tearing it up, but then you, or whoever is handling your estate, will need to show proof that you tore it up. Much easier to write a document stating that you revoke your will on such and such date, sign it before two witnesses, and while you're at it, just to keep things simple, do a new will. If Evelyn had really destroyed her will, it would mean she died without a will, and all her money and property would go to her next of kin, which Bar Mordecai claimed was him, that as her de facto partner, he was entitled to everything. So you can see that it's a bit suspicious that the person claiming that her will was destroyed is also the one who's going to get everything if that's the case. 
He also claimed that around 1993, Evelyn told him that she intended to make a will leaving him both the Mount Street unit and her interest in the Cloverley house. But the court said that, and I quote, This string of fables takes its place among the more fantastic of Mr. Bar Mordecai's fantastic stories, like most of them highly improbable, but difficult to prove to be impossible, end quote. In my opinion, judges write the most excellent and eloquent criticisms, just poetic. The court decided that Bar Mordecai himself had destroyed Evelyn's 1989 will, or he had otherwise hidden it. So the terms of the 1989 will, which were still known, could still be carried out, because there was no reliable evidence that Evelyn had revoked it. Although Evelyn's will appointed Bar Mordecai as executor and trustee, he was found by the court not to be suitable to act as executor. After all, he was the one who had either destroyed or hidden the original. So the court instead appointed Alan Hilston to administer Evelyn's estate in accordance with her 1989 will. So if you'll remember, Alan is her late husband's nephew. Bar Mordecai started legal proceedings seeking to have Alan removed as administrator, claiming that Alan had provided false evidence to the court. This application was dismissed. Bar Mordecai tried to show that Alan had bad character, in part by referring to the complaint Alan had made to New South Wales Police that Evelyn died in suspicious circumstances. The court stated that there were reasonable grounds for Alan to make a complaint to police and for police to investigate Evelyn's death. Quote, Reasonable grounds for suspicion were raised by Mr. Bar Mordecai having been Miss Evelyn Hilston's usual medical attendant while living in a close personal association with her and by his having administered morphine to her shortly before her death. End quote. There was an extensive investigation by police, but ultimately the coroner decided not to conduct an inquest into her death. Bar Mordecai tried to argue that it was wrong of Alan to have complained to the police in the first place. However, the court found that it was only reasonable to do so given the circumstances. Undue Influence As administrator of Evelyn's estate, Alan sued Bar Mordecai in relation to a number of gifts Evelyn had made to him when she was alive, on the basis that the gifts were obtained by undue influence. The equitable doctrine of undue influence involves one person being in a position of power over another, and taking advantage of that position to get an advantage. Because of the power imbalance between the parties, the weaker party cannot have acted independently and of their own free will. Undue influence is presumed to exist where there is an improvident gift in certain relationships, such as between a solicitor and a client, a clergyman and his parishioner, or a doctor and his patient. It can exist in relationships that don't fall within those categories, so long as you have that relationship where one party is trusted and able to dominate the other. Alan was claiming that the presumption applied to Bar Mordecai, both because he was Evelyn's doctor, but also just in general because she trusted him and he used his power over her to get her to give him gifts. And because of the power imbalance between them, she couldn't be said to have agreed to the gifts of her own free will. So what gifts are we talking about? There were a couple of gifts of money, all up about $135,000 paid to Bar Mordecai in various amounts over several years. For example, Evelyn gave Bar Mordecai $20,000 in 1984 to help him with his divorce cost. Then there is the Cloverley Road property. 
Soon after her husband's death, Evelyn bought a property at 212 Cloverley Road, Cloverley, where Barmordecai had his medical surgery. Initially, she rented the place to him on terms very advantageous to him and not to her. In 1987, Evelyn sold the surgery to Bar Mordecai supposedly for $360,000, but no money was paid to her at that time. The original agreement was that Bar Mordecai would pay her back $250,000 of the purchase price with interest at 10% per annum. This amount was secured by a mortgage on the property. Originally, Evelyn had Bar Mordecai sign a legal document stating that he would pay the balance of the purchase price, $110,000, whenever Evelyn requested it paid. This document was prepared with the help of Evelyn's solicitor. Later, and without solicitor's advice, Evelyn forgave this debt. There was an odd tax shuffle going on in that Bar Mordecai paid $31,000 on the mortgage for the year up to June 1991, and Evelyn then immediately paid the same amount back to him on the 1st of July. He paid the same amount to her on June 1992, and again she paid it back to him immediately on the 1st of July 1992. In 1993, about six years after the property had supposedly been sold to him, Evelyn discharged the mortgage without Bar Mordecai having paid any of it. So in effect he got the Clavelli Road medical surgery free. Then there was the Eastbourne Avenue house which they lived together at the time of her death. In 1988, Evelyn and Bar Mordecai purchased the house at 30 Eastbourne Avenue for $665,000. They owned it two-thirds in Evelyn's name and one-third in Bar Mordecai's name. However, Evelyn paid all the money for the property. There is a letter from Evelyn to her accountant explaining the purchase. Evelyn was to provide the full purchase price and Bar Mordecai was to contribute $250,000 towards renovations and he got a loan to do this and the renovations included adding a third story to the house and adding a pool. That is why the property was held with Bar Mordecai having one third. On occasion, Evelyn saw solicitors for other matters, but it does not appear that she ever got any legal advice about making the gifts to Bar Mordecai. During all of these transactions, neither Bar Mordecai or Evelyn told any of her solicitors or accountant that Bar Mordecai was her GP or that they were in a de facto relationship. The foundation of the claim of undue influence is that from August 1983 until her death in June 1994, Bar Mordecai was Evelyn's treating GP. He came to know Evelyn when he was treating her sick husband for about four years before his death, during which time he also provided Evelyn with medical treatment. Justice Bryson said, and I quote, It was a breach of the well-known ethics of the medical profession that he embarked on a sexual relationship with her and took benefits of substantial economic value from her. His conduct was also in breach of ethical principles which restrain emotional and economic exploitation of aged women who have recently been widowed, and those principles are not special to the medical profession. End quote. Evelyn really was vulnerable after the death of her husband. She had loved her husband. When he was in a vegetative state, she would visit him frequently, ensure he received proper medical attention, and was in a desperate state when she had difficulty visiting him in a far distant hospital. She later referred to his death as, quote, the most tragic moment of one's life, end quote. She had his ashes placed in a niche at the crematorium and visited him every month for a decade until mid-1993 when her health wouldn't let her go anymore. The court had found that Bar Mordecai had come to occupy a special position of influence over Evelyn and that he unconscientiously abused that position of influence. In one of the hearings, Justice Einstein stated, quote, 
At the time when Dr. Ba Mordecai commenced his relationship with the deceased, she was suffering under possibly the worst of adverse circumstances ever suffered in her life, namely a period in which her husband of some 40-odd years was in a totally unconscious state for over a year. During this period, the deceased was vulnerable to the extreme, to the unconscientious use of any special capacity or opportunity which might exist, and be held by a person in a position of influence. The deceased, as she grew old and frail, was vulnerable to matters concerning her ill health. The transactions she entered into with the plaintiff speak volumes in terms of the domination, influence and position of superiority which the plaintiff came to have over the deceased. End quote. During the court proceedings, Bar Mordecai referred to Evelyn as his wife and himself as her husband and argued that it was only natural for a wife to give her husband gifts. The court said characterising their relationship as husband and wife does not excuse or justify gifts which other circumstances of the relationship show were brought about by undue influence. So Bar Mordecai had not rebutted the presumption of undue influence in relation to any of the gifts or transactions. The court ordered that his interest in the surgery and the Eastbourne house were to be returned to the estate. In 2001, the estate sold the Eastbourne house for just under $2 million and the surgery for $2,855,000. When the surgery was sold, they had to pay the mortgage of about $440,000, which Bar Mordecai is required to repay to the estate. Bar Mordecai was ordered to repay gifts of $95,000 to the estate, as well as $37,000 he had received for renting out the Eastbourne Avenue home. He was also ordered to pay rent on the surgery for the period between November 1987 to February 2001. Allowing for some deductions, it was calculated to be 112000 in unpaid rent. All up, Bar Mordecai was ordered to repay 684000 to the estate, with interest of 140000 In 2004, Bar Mordecai appealed and was slightly successful in appealing the undue influence decision. So as I said, any substantial benefit received by a doctor from a patient is presumed to be the result of undue influence. To rebut this, the doctor must show that the gifts were the independent and well-understood act of a woman in a position to exercise free judgment. The appeal court found that in relation to the gift to Bar Mordecai of the one-third interest in the Eastbourne Avenue property, Bar Mordecai had demonstrated that the gift was the independent and well-understood act of Evelyn. She retained a two-thirds interest in the property, and her solicitor confirmed that she had understood her financial position at that time and fully comprehended the transaction and the legal advice he gave her. There was strong evidence that Evelyn maintained mental capacity, had a strong business acumen and knowledge of affairs. This was relied upon by Bar Mordecai, as well as the fact that he was a natural object of Evelyn's generosity, given their relationship in the absence of competing claims. He was her lover, her companion, her carer, and it would be normal to give gifts to a lover, companion or carer. And it's not like she had any other close family she could shower with gifts. So in relation to the Eastbourne Avenue property, the court found, and I quote, when added to the evidence of the deceased's mental capacity, her genuine affection for the domestic partner, the involvement of a lawyer, and the absence of evidence of fraud or concealment, there was, in our view, adequate material to answer to concerns raised by the presumption of undue influence. End quote. Nevertheless, the court found that Bar Mordecai had failed to remove the doubt in relation to the undue influence issues touching the surgery. I think what made the Eastbourne Avenue property so different to make the court decide that the undue influence rules didn't apply here, this transaction Evelyn actually got legal advice about as compared to the others where she didn't. So with this transaction there was a legal advisor to give her advice about the transaction and the effect 
and to confirm that she understood what she was doing. So he was allowed to keep one third of the Eastbourne Avenue home, but the medical surgery belonged to the estate. going to break it off there and give you a rest from the doctor and come back to it in part two of this very interesting and complex case. So be sure to join me in part two where we talk about the family provision proceedings, the section 66G proceedings, the medical tribunal proceedings and just how Bar Mordecai ran his case in general. I hope you'll join me for that. In the meantime, a big thank you from the Elder Abuse Service for listening in. Remember, if you have identified or if you are at risk of elder abuse, you can call 1-800-353-374 or if you are on the New South Wales Central Coast, you can contact our service on 024324 5611. Thanks.